Hello, my name is Justin Kempf, and I am the host of Democracy Paradox. It's yet another podcast from the Democracy Group. Look, you're probably wondering what sets my podcast apart. Well, I'm not a journalist, and I'm not an academic. I just read a lot, and I have the most fascinating conversations with some of the brightest minds about topics like civil resistance, democratization, and polarization. Try downloading just one episode. Go to democracyparadox.com or look for Democracy Paradox on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kara ong Associate Director at JMU Civic. This is Abe Goldberg, co-host of Democracy Matters and director of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. And I'm Ali Behrens. I'm a senior at James Madison University, majoring in sociology and minoring in environmental studies. And I'm going to be a Democracy Fellow this summer with JMU Civic. In this episode, we talk with Jana Mason, Senior External Relations Advisor at the Washington, D.C. Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. She oversees the office's work in representing UNHCR's interests with the U.S. government, including the State Department and Congress, and with non-governmental organizations. We talk with Jana about the global migration and refugee crisis and what we can do about it. Enjoy the episode. Jana, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to ask the first question. Uh, We are experiencing a global migration and refugee crisis with nearly 80 million people who have been forced to flee their homes worldwide, the highest number since World War II. According to the UN, a person is forced to leave home every two seconds and half of the world's 26 million refugees are under the age of 18 years old. Can you talk about the root causes of this crisis? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for that question. It's, it's a big question. And in order to, to understand the, the causes of forced migration, um, it's important, first of all, to just sort of unpack um, some of what was in your, in your question. You referenced migrants and refugees. And for the purposes of, of my agency and for a discussion of forced migration or forced displacement, as we like to call it, um, I think it's important to distinguish between the terms. Um, migrants, obviously, there is a worldwide migration phenomenon, and that's existed for, for, for centuries. And migration in and of itself um, is just a part of human nature, uh, as we all know. Um, refugee movement is something something very different, or at least um, a very discrete component of migration. You can define migrants as people who move, um, who cross borders for various reasons, Um, Some of them, many of them we're familiar with, people who want to um, find a better life, find employment, reunify with families. Um, That happens all the time. And many migrants cross multiple borders looking for um, the best situation for them and and for their families. Refugees, by contrast, 
don't so much as choose to move as they are forced to flee. That's that's a definition that we often use. People forced to flee, they usually cross only one border, one international border, and they stay there waiting for a chance to go home or to find some other solution. And and the root causes of refugee flight are, are, are much more narrow. They are basically persecution, war, violence. The, the refugee definition that you, um, that you referenced has persecution at its core. A refugee under international law as well as U.S. law um, is someone who has crossed an international border um, and, and can't go home because they would fear persecution, which is very bad treatment, usually imprisonment, death, torture, um, you know, different than, than discrimination, very severe treatment um, on, the, on account of one of five grounds. It's linked to their race, to their religion, um, to their nationality, which is generally defined as their ethnic background, um, their political views, political opinion, which we understand, or something called membership in a particular social group. And that is rather flexible, but it could be, for example, um, individuals um, persecuted for their sexual orientation or their gender identity. It could be young men forcibly conscripted into uh, gangs or militias. It can be members of a high-profile family, uh, but people who share some common characteristic that they shouldn't be forced to change. So these are people fleeing persecution, severe violence, Often this persecution um, based on political views or religion or race happens in the context of war or armed conflict, say, for example, Syria, what's happening there. So these are people forced to flee. They don't have a choice. Um, There is some overlap between economic conditions, uh, climate-induced displacement, and people fleeing war, violence, persecution. But to be considered a refugee, this persecution, this violence has to be one of the fundamental reasons you're fleeing. And so these are root causes that aren't going to be easy to fix without addressing um, violence and war and conflict itself. And that's why many of these situations go on and on without a resolution, unfortunately. What are the realities and daily lived experiences for asylum seekers, migrants, and refugees? How does UNHCR work to build empathy and understanding for the challenges refugees face? This has been um, a big challenge for us throughout our our history. Um, And just to explain what UNHCR does, we've been around since uh, 1950. Um, We were formed uh, in the aftermath of of World War II, initially to address the uh, the specific situation of people uprooted as a result of World War II. And the thought was, when we found solutions for those people, that we would cease to exist. Uh, What happened, uh, however, was that refugee situations started popping up in various parts of the world. Um, We had to expand beyond World War II, beyond Europe, uh, and and try to protect and find solutions for people literally from every every continent around the world. Wars and, and violence and displacement did not go away. Eventually, our mandate was made indefinite, and now we work in 130 countries around the world. And we are mandated under international law, under the 1951 Refugee Convention, to lead the international response to refugee situations and try to find solutions, which is usually helping refugees go back home when it's safe to do so, 
or to locally integrate where they are, or in, in the case of a very small number who are the most vulnerable, to find what we call third country resettlement in communities in the U.S. and in countries around the world. But that, that's a small number. Um, so we have this international mandate uh, to find solutions. While we're waiting for solutions, we work with partners, NGOs, and others around the world to protect and assist refugees where they are. Um, but a big part of our work is educating about refugee situations and advocating um, for their protection and solutions. We um, have to go every year and try to raise, raise funds from donor governments and from the private sector and individuals as well, but most of our money comes from governments like the U.S. Um, so to do that, we have to explain the plight of refugees. And there are differences among populations, you know, since refugees uh, come from all corners of the globe and they're fleeing uh, different situations, telling their stories has to be something that's that's very personal. But we have found that the best way to build empathy and build understanding is to tell those personal stories and make the case that refugees are very much like us. I mean, any one of us in the right combination of political circumstances, could find ourselves forced to flee our homes. Um, those of us who haven't experienced that are, are very fortunate, but it has happened to people all around the globe, people of all races and religions, clearly, people of all socioeconomic classes, um, people of all sorts of backgrounds. Um, you already mentioned earlier, half of them are children, 80% are women and children. Uh, you have elderly refugees, disabled um, uh, across the spectrum. So telling these human stories, making it clear that they are like us, they have similar backgrounds in many cases, and they want the same things that we all do, which is safety, first of all, first and foremost, safety from violence for ourselves and for our families, then the opportunity um, to make a life, hopefully back in our home country, which, which is what refugees want most, to go home when it's safe to do so. If that can't happen, they want the same opportunities, again, that we want for ourselves and our families, which is to go to school, to get an education, to earn a living, um, uh, to access employment, to have freedom of movement, um, to be able to live uh, a life like, like anyone else. So telling these stories, um, explaining what a refugee is, who they are, what they want, dispelling a lot of myths. There's unfortunately a lot of misinformation around who refugees are, why they're fleeing, where they want to go, um, telling those stories, uh, trying to bust some of the myths is, is really important to building empathy and understanding. I'm going to ask a follow-up question about a specific issue that I've been reading about really just this week, um, especially as U.S. troops are withdrawing from Af Afghanistan. Can you speak at all to the program about... Um, Afghans who had been employed by the American military um, who are seeking refugee to America because their lives and the lives of their families are at risk for having helped America over the last two decades in the Middle East. Absolutely. That, that issue is um, getting a lot of interest, not only in, in the press and the media, but in the discussions that we have that my colleagues and I have with um, U.S. government officials. The, the head of our agency, our High Commissioner, Filippo Grande, who's based at our headquarters in Geneva, was in Washington recently and had a number of 
meetings with um, U.S. government officials in the White House and the State Department elsewhere. And in many of his meetings, uh, this issue was raised. So it is a topic of interest. Um, yes, as you mentioned, the U.S. government has a program. It's called the SIV program, Special Immigrant Visa Program, um, which was created a number of years ago to address um, specifically Afghans and Iraqis. Um, it's been used um, for persons in Iraq as well. Um, individuals who worked for U.S. government, particularly the U.S. military, um, in some cases, um, it could be other branches of the government, but particularly people who were employed by or associated with the U.S. government. Many of them worked as drivers or interpreters or in some other capacity. And as a result of that, they're at particular risk um, by forces in their countries who are not favorable um, to, to, to the U.S. government and U.S. policy. Um, the U.S. recognized that these people would be at particular risk and created a program um, to, to bring them and their immediate families um, to the U.S. It's a specific U.S. government program, so UNHCR doesn't have a specific role in it, but there are some connections. For example, um, the SIV program usually works for people who are still in their home country. So in this case, it would be Afghans who are still in Afghanistan. Most of the time when we refer refugees for resettlement to the U.S. or other countries, these are people who are outside their home country. So for example, Afghans who have fled to Pakistan or other neighboring countries. There is um, a fear that when the U.S. completes its troop withdrawal over the summer, um, and by September 11th, that there could be, and no one knows for sure, but there could be increased displacement both inside Afghanistan and increased refugee flows to Pakistan, to Iran, and elsewhere. Um, so the U.S. is already wondering if um, they will need to increase the number of visas available through this special program. And they've also talked to us about creating a special ref a refugee category for individuals who may not meet the criteria of the SIV program, for example, maybe they weren't employed long enough, or maybe they worked for a U.S. government sub subcontractor as opposed to being directly employed by the U.S. government, because there are certain criteria. If they don't meet the strict criteria, but they still could be associated with the U.S. and still at risk, this is a category of individuals who may be appropriate for us to identify as refugees, as being particularly vulnerable, and then referring them to the U.S. So we're in discussions with the U.S. The US government about how that could work. But again, this is all contingency planning at the moment because nobody knows exactly what will happen as the U.S. completes its withdrawal. Nobody knows if there will be a big additional influx to Pakistan and elsewhere. Um, but we are watching that very carefully and making contingency plans for various scenarios um, so that we'll be prepared if and when that happens. Thank you so much, Jana. I, you mentioned some of the work that the United States is doing, um, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the other countries that are doing the most for refugees and asylum seekers and countries that should be doing more. I'm glad you asked that question because sometimes there's um, a belief in, in the media which fuels popular belief that the refugee phenomenon globally is primarily an issue 
um, in the developed world and in in countries like like the U.S., which really couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, a lot of this was fueled or started back in 2015 when, for various reasons, there was a large influx of Syrians and others who crossed the Mediterranean trying to reach Europe. This happened for a variety of reasons, but these were largely Syrians who had already been refugees in countries neighboring Syria, um, Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, and elsewhere, for several years. They were starting to lose hope. Um, there was sort of a confluence of factors, including um, smugglers who took advantage of this frustration and um, started making it easier uh, for some Syrians and others to go on, unfortunately, very unseaworthy vessels uh, to try to cross the Mediterranean. It was a small fraction of all the Syrian refugees, but this group um, gained a lot of attention. And at the same time, there's a lot of attention here in the U.S. to what's happening on the southern border uh, with Central Americans and others um, trying to seek asylum in the U.S. These situations are very real, but again, both of them represent a tiny fraction of the world's refugees. The reality uh, as I mentioned earlier, is that most refugees cross a single border and stay close to home in a neighboring country, waiting for the situation in their home country to resolve or to find another long-term solution. So the vast majority of refugees, close to 90%, uh, are in the developing world. Most of them are hosted in neighboring countries that have their own financial issues, their own political issues. They're the ones who are really doing the lion's share of hosting refugees. There are other ways to address refugee situations as well. As I mentioned, we need financial donors. We need political support, diplomatical, dip, excuse me, we need financial support. We need diplomatic support. But one of the biggest ways to help refugees is by hosting them on their territory. So for example, the largest refugee hosting country in the world is Turkey. They're hosting roughly 3.7 million refugees, mostly Syrians, but also Afghans, Iraqis, and others. They've been doing this for years. Lebanon, which is a tiny country, 4 million people at the time the Syrian war began, for years they've been hosting over a million Syrians, which means roughly 20% of people in Lebanon now is a Syrian refugee. Uh, Colombia is hosting almost 2 million Venezuelans, and Colombia itself still has millions of internally displaced Colombians. These are people who would be refugees, but they, they don't cross an international border. So they're internally displaced. We work to help these people as well. So many refugee hosting countries, um, not all of them, but many of them produce their own refugees or they have internal displacement, or like I said, they have economic and political challenges. So the developing countries of the world, Turkey, um, not only Jordan and Lebanon and others in the Syria region, but Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan and Iran uh, are hosting large numbers of Afghans. Uh, Uganda, um, many countries throughout Africa hosting refugees from neighboring countries. In the Venezuela situation, you have Colombia, you have Ecuador, uh, you have so many countries who for years have been very generously hosting others that the rest of the international community needs to step up and help them. So in recent years, We've been advocating not only for humanitarian aid to help refugees in these countries, but we've been advocating for more development aid, more um, bilateral uh, aid and private sector investment to help the host countries themselves 
so that they can improve the living situation for their own citizens, schools, um, roads, hospitals, the employment sector. In turn, we ask them to keep their borders open to refugees and allow refugees to work and go to school and move around freely so that they can contribute to those countries. But we know that we have to do more for the countries and the communities themselves who are hosting refugees. For others like the U.S., like Europe, the wealthier countries of the world, we ask them not only to be uh, strong financial donors for humanitarian aid, but also to have very robust refugee resettlement programs, um, which uh, happens in many communities around uh, the U.S., including where, where you are, um, but also to provide asylum for individuals who, who come to the country and seek protection. There are various ways countries can help, but but through financial contributions, refugee resettlement, grants of asylum, and also political support to these host countries, that's very important. You reminded me of the, the situation in Gaza, and I'm wondering if you can speak to the situation for uh, Palestinian refugees globally, but also the impact of the recent conflict on internally displaced persons within Gaza. Sure. Um, let me uh, clarify one point which is that there are actually two refugee agencies with, within the UN. Um, there, we have a sister agency called UNRWA, uh, the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, a very long, complicated name. Um, but UNRWA has a mandate to assist um, Palestinians, um, specifically in, in five areas, in the West Bank and Gaza, um, in Jordan, Lebanon and Syria. Um, the, my agency, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, the UN Refugee Agency, has a mandate for all the rest of the world's refugees, as well as for Palestinians who may find themselves outside of these five areas that I mentioned, small numbers, um, for example, in Iraq uh, and elsewhere. Um, and this exists, this reason, this distinction exists because at the time the refugee convention was developed and my agency was formed, UNRWA already existed and was already helping Palestinians. Um, so the refugee convention specifically mentions that um, refugees under international law, those assisted by my agency, are those who are not already receiving assistance from another UN agency. It sounds like a bureaucratic technicality, but it was meant to distinguish the very um, special circumstances that Palestinians find themselves in because of the legal situation, the political situation. So UNRWA helps them. So this isn't meant to dodge the question, just to say that my agency doesn't directly work with Palestinians. Um, however, I will say to the UN and to the world in general, it's obviously um, a major concern. What's happening uh, in the region right now is, is heartbreaking, um, obviously needs to be resolved. Um, UNRWA does uh, incredible work uh, throughout the region trying to assist um, roughly 5.6 million uh, Palestinians who remain as, as refugees under that specific uh, category that I, that I mentioned. Um, so they're continuing to do uh, tremendous work. Um, obviously, a political solution has been elusive for decades. Um, but like with all refugee situations, ultimately a political solution and an end to violence is the only thing that will bring um, 
long-term resolution to these refugee situations. In the meantime, what we do and what UNRWA does is basically putting a Band-Aid on, the, on a wound by providing humanitarian assistance and hopefully more education, livelihood opportunities when possible, um, you know, allowing refugees to be, uh, to have some autonomy and be agents of change um, uh, to the extent that they can in their own futures. We, we do that as a temporary measure until political solutions can end the conflict and allow refugees to go back home or if home isn't possible, to find uh, a long-term, what we call durable solution in another country. And can you speak to the contributions that refugees make to society and democracy that are often overlooked or underappreciated? Absolutely. I, I think they are often overlooked because refugees, the term refugees, sometimes just implies, uh, you know, a person who is helpless and dependent on aid and that couldn't be further from the truth. And it's also what we want to change globally by making sure that where refugees are um, in a situation of long-term protracted displacement, that they aren't you know, wasting their time and their talents. Like I said, that they can go to school, that they can um, engage in wage-earning employment wherever they are. But the best example of the the, the talents that refugees have and the benefits that they bring is in the case of third country resettlement. As I mentioned, it's a small uh, solution um, of the almost 30 million refugees in the world right now, uh, including the, the Palestinians. Um, in any given year, less than 1% is able to be resettled in a third country. In fact, in recent years, it's been less than half of 1%. Hopefully that number will increase a little bit. Um, but even at the height of uh, refugee resettlement, no more than maybe 150,000, 200,000 refugees have ever been resettled in a given year. Uh, and you, again, you multiply that into, you know, 25 million refugees who are under our mandate, um, 30 million total. It's a very, very small number. So the refugees who we refer for resettlement tend to be those who are particularly vulnerable in the host country, maybe female-headed households, um, women with large numbers of children and no male support, sometimes elderly or disabled refugees, people with medical needs, or people with physical protection needs, maybe um, where one member of the family was a, a victim of severe violence um, or trauma. And, and won't be able to go home. So of these refugees, and sometimes we, we resettle people with very close family members in another country as well, um, we refer these individuals for resettlement, and then it's up to governments like the U.S. to interview them and decide if they qualify and then um, bring them to the new country. This is a legal admissions program. Like I said, um, it only benefits usually no more than about 150,000 people a year. The U.S. traditionally is by, lar by far the largest refugee resettlement agency, not so much in the past few years, but we're hoping um, with the current administration uh, that will change. When refugees do get the chance to be resettled, that's really where you see what they can bring to their new communities. Many of them 
become entrepreneurs, they start businesses. In many cases, their children are valedictorians or are incredibly successful. They, not only do they open restaurants and bring culinary diversity um, to many cities, but they really revitalize a lot of cities. Many of them go on to become very um, highly skilled professionals, uh, bringing employment, bringing diversity, bringing um, tremendous gifts to their new communities. You know, we often mention the fact that Albert Einstein was a refugee and there throughout history have been many refugees who have contributed to the arts, to politics, to, um, to sports, to, to, to medicine, to so many fields, to business. So um, again, refugees are like us. If given the opportunity, they can, they can do great things and they do. We, we do these, um, talks around campus, we call them tent talks, to you know bring public issues and create our own public squares around campus. And we, we had some students visit us from UC San Diego, so we did a joint one with them, and they wanted to do it on immigration and, and refugees. And their, their sort of like provocative question to draw students into the talks was, what do Jesus, Albert Einstein, and some pop star I can't remember have in common? That's a great question. Absolutely. Yes. When speaking to faith-based organizations, um, we also often mention that Jesus was a refugee, although most of them know that because uh, welcome the stranger is, is usually one of the mantras for those, uh, uh, those types of organizations. Yes, absolutely. With, in terms of pop musicians, every year we have a concert on World Refugee Day at the Kennedy Center, and we feature individuals who are either refugees or come from refugee-producing countries. And the diversity of music has been incredible. And so many of these people come from horrifying situations. Um, I, I feel a sense of urgency as we're having this conversation, but I'm also wondering if we're living in a constant state of urgency when dealing with the, with these pro, with the refugee issues, um, given the root causes that you've addressed. It certainly does seem um, like we're in a constant state of urgency. Um, you know, one of the reasons we've we've gotten to the situation of 80 million forcibly uprooted, and this 80 million includes refugees who have crossed an international border, internally displaced persons who are 40 some million more than more than the refugee number is people who, for various reasons, don't cross an international border, but they fled their homes but not their countries. They're internally displaced. Then you have a small number, a um, little over 4 million, that's considered asylum seekers, which basically means people who have fled to another country and applied for asylum, usually through a formal legal um, asylum so system, such as in the U.S., and they haven't had their claim heard. This is more of an individual basis than large numbers crossing borders. And the reason we get to that 80 million figure is because the new crises start and the old ones don't go away. Um, most of the world's refugees are in what we call protracted situations. You know, Syria has been going on now for 10 years, and I still think of that as one of the newer <laughs> situations if you compare it to Somalia and Afghanistan and even Burma and so many other parts, in the uh, parts of the world where crisis has been going on for decades. So you have these old situations that don't get resolved because the international community just hasn't done a very good job of, of um, ending conflict. Then you have the newer crises, such as in Central America. Um, we have situations in uh, northern Mozambique, the Central African Republic. Um, you know, you've heard of the Ukraine situation, which isn't so new anymore. 
Um, but new crises erupt. The old ones don't go away. Occasionally a situation is resolved, but the numbers just keep growing. And so we have this phenomenon that we call protracted emergencies, which sounds a bit like an oxymoron, but it basically means a low-level emergency that just simmers for years or decades and doesn't go away. And that's the situation we're, we're dealing with right now. So, Jana, what should public policymakers take into consideration when designing and implementing policies to address refugee and asylum seekers? I think what we want primarily, in addition, of course, to the ongoing um, financial assistance that we unfortunately still need in order to provide uh, aid to refugees around the world, um, the primary policy change that we need, which I um, alluded to in one of the other answers, is recognizing that since refugee crises go on for so long and since the traditional solutions of going home or locally integrating you know, legally or finding a third country uh, to resettle you, since those options are, are very limited and the reality is that most refugees stay in limbo for years and decades, what we need are interim solutions. We really need more support to the host countries of the world, um, you know, again, mostly in developing uh, uh, regions, where um, those countries will get financial and political support and assistance to help their own populations. And in turn, they will allow refugees, even if it's just temporarily, um, to work allow children to go to school. We, we're also advocating for more what we call complementary legal pathways, such as more student visas. And this is something that institutions of higher learning, we hope, will really get behind. Make more scholarships available for refugee students around the world so that they can get a student visa, come um, to a place like the U.S. or elsewhere, get an education that then will benefit um, their home country, if they go back home, it will benefit their host country if they go back to a place like Uganda or Pakistan or Ecuador. And it would certainly benefit um, a place like the U.S. or a European country or Canada or Australia if they get resettled there, having that education. Um, temporary work visas, um, uh, short-term work visas are needed in many countries, particularly countries like the U.S. that has an aging population, Right. So interim solutions where people can move legally for um, work reasons, for, for reasons of school, maybe for short-term family reunion, um, even if it's not an offer of citizenship and a permanent solution, at least it would be something that would take the pressure off the developing host countries and allow refugees, again, to use their brains, use their, their time and their talents um, to benefit themselves and to benefit wherever they find themselves uh, going forward. And what advice would you have for people who want to take action on the important issues you've addressed? One of the things we, we would urge anyone to do um, is just to become informed, to become educated. As I mentioned, there are so many uh, myths, so much misinformation uh, about refugees, about who they are, about why they're moving, um, about where they're going, um, that awareness raising on the facts, the truth, which is a challenge these days, but for any educational institution um, with a commitment to facts, a commitment to learning, hopefully this would become a big part of their mandate to educate themselves and the, the local communities on um, the realities of refugees. 
Um, become in, involved, become informed. Uh, social media is a great avenue for that. These types of talks and panels um, are another great avenue. Obviously, if anyone can can uh, donate financially, it doesn't have to be to a UN agency. There are so many local organizations, U.S.-based agencies that work in the U.S., that work overseas, um, you know, providing that type of support is important. But another great way to get involved at the community level is to volunteer or go to work for a refugee organization. But many um, community-based organizations who assist refugees or who assist asylum seekers in the U.S. need volunteers. They need volunteers to teach English, to help refugees become uh, adjusted, to help kids enroll, enroll in school. They also need don uh, donations of material goods um, and all sorts of assistance. So volunteering with a local community organization, um, becoming informed, becoming a social media advocate um, for these individuals. And then, of course, anyone who's politically inclined should let their policymakers know that there is a constituency out there who supports refugees. I think the other side um, often is more vocal. People who unfortunately um, you know, don't share concern for refugees, tend to be, you know, a bit nativist or xenophobic, you know, that, that's a real concern in many parts of the world. And those voices can be loud. So voices, voices of um, empathy with refugees, voices of, of tolerance, voices that support diversity and that recognize the, the talents that refugees bring to those communities, U.S. policymakers need to hear from them as much, if not more, than they hear. They need to hear from the other side. They need to hear that there are individuals out there who support refugees, who support U.S. humanitarian engagement, and support U.S. leadership, not on, only on overseas financial assistance, but on U.S. refugee settlement and asylum as well. Jana, you have given us uh, so many important nuggets of information um, and really addressed this issue from so many levels. We, we just really appreciate your time and your expertise and all of the issues that you've raised today. Um, we ask this final question of all of our guests, what would you do to strengthen democracy? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, my answer might have changed over the years, uh, but I think Given what the U.S. at least has has gone through in recent years, and um, the fact that I told you we're, we're struggling in a in a sea of misinformation, um, the the simple thing that I would say now to strengthen democracy would be to tell the truth and to amplify voices of of truth. Um, no one can make good and informed decisions if they're swimming in a sea of misinformation. And, and it's not an easy um, battle to engage in, um, as we all know right now. If it were easy, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be in the situation where, where people don't know what to believe. But in order to fight for democracy, you, you have to know what you're fighting for. So you have to have the facts. So again, with this type of audience um, and this type of discussion being hosted by an educational institution, uh, I think um, you're in an amazing position to amplify these voices, to get facts out there, and to help us all engage in a debate where we come from the same 
uh, place where we're seeing the same facts. We can interpret them differently. We can have debates about the, pe the best policy solution. That's what democracy is all about, different voices um, engaging in, in debate. But if you have a different set of facts and people don't know what to believe or who to believe, you can't even start the conversation. So I would appeal to anyone in a position to, to find the truth, to um, sponsor um, any sort of dialogue, research, discussion, advocacy, where um, truth can be a big, a big part of it and where we can start from the position of common facts I think that's where that's where we have to start. Jonna Mason with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees Agency. Thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters.